The sun is gone that sweetly shone Across the bogs the seamews wail On hills and shores the tempest roars The night is dark o'er Inishvale so we'll go up to the strong rooms and I will show you where the diaries are held. And so this is the inner sanctum, so very few people get in this far. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I've been so privileged. Deep in the vaults of the University College Dublin archive, actor and researcher Sharon McArdle is about to set eyes for the first time on a series of documents that will take her on a remarkable journey into the mind of a visionary Irish artist and revolutionary. Here I've taken out the box with the diaries. And I'll just take them out for you now. So the, the first one is this lovely marbled cover on the notebook, uh, Vigil, a journal of Mount Joy, November 1922 by Dorothy McCardle. And many a light that from Made Aaron's might with beauty glow. Sharon McArdle and Declan Gorman are theatre makers from the northeast of Ireland. In 2017, we were invited to present one of Dorothy's early plays at a conference organised by the Dorothy McArdle Society in Dundalk. Yeah, I suppose prior to the conference, neither of us had much knowledge of Dorothy McArdle. We were aware that her papers were burned after her death by her brother and this was a recurring theme throughout her life. Even her early papers were destroyed in 1922 during a raid by the Free State soldiers. So we worked on with the literature that we had access to. We had essays by local historians, uh, academic papers and so on. And we were rehearsing one day in a drafty old barn out in the middle of nowhere in North County Louth and you came in and you had some exciting news. I found out that three of her jail journals had survived the burnings. So when I met with Kate Manning at the UCD archive and she showed me the jail journals, her words were, this is holy grail material. Up until that point, I had thought that everything, all her early writings had been destroyed. And here I was looking at these beautiful notebooks in Dorothy's own hand. I was just so excited. And thus began a five-year process of investigation and creative endeavour that would take Sharon and Declan into archives, historic libraries and even the very prison cells where Dorothy and her fellow Republican women prisoners were held. Dorothy is, as you say, a very interesting woman, but unfortunately, from the perspective of a historian, her brother burned her papers when she died. So there's a lot of sleuthing to do in terms of accessing her voice. Dr. Leanne Lane of Dublin City University, author of a biography of Dorothy McArdle. And I think we can certainly, as historians, create a timeline of what she did, but what she felt about what she did is harder to access. Uh, so when I began my biography of Dorothy McArdle, that was a big problem for me. But I did discover by chance that a fragment of her jail journal, which she kept from November 1922 to March 1923, remained in the De Valera paper. So somehow it managed to escape the burning. So who was Dorothy McArdle? 
Born in 1889, she was already an established Abbey playwright at the time of her arrest and imprisonment in 1922 for writing anti-treaty propaganda. Later in life, she published a number of acclaimed novels, one of which, The Uninvited, was turned into a major Hollywood horror movie in the 1940s. She was the author of a significant history called The Irish Republic, published in 1937. After the Second World War, Dorothy McArdle wrote a human rights report into the plight of minors, orphaned and separated as a result of Nazi atrocities in Europe. And yet, in spite of her many remarkable achievements in her lifetime, memory of Dorothy was all but erased for several decades after her death in 1958. In common with many women who contributed to the formation and early years of the Irish state, her work was generally overlooked by historians. On top of this, her personal papers and manuscripts were burned on more than one occasion. Over the past decade, however, significant work has been undertaken to understand and restore Dorothy's legacy. Sharon and Declan's artistic quest was inspired by this recent movement to reclaim the voices of notable women, so often omitted from the received narratives of Irish history. Other ways, of course, of accessing Dorothy's voice is the journalism that she produced. So she was a journalist and political propagandist when she emerged out of the Civil War jails. And you can access certainly her political opinions through her journalism, for example, the Irish Republic. During her time in prison, Dorothy composed poetry and song lyrics. She also completed Earthbound, a collection of ghostly short stories. But it was her unpublished diaries above all that fascinated the two artists. What clues might they contain about the lives of the many women imprisoned by former comrades as political differences over the Anglo-Irish Treaty descended into a deadly civil war? What insights might these personal accounts of trauma and deprivation offer into Dorothy's own later emergence as a public figure and visionary artist? On Leanne's advice, Sharon's research began with a visit to the UCD archive, situated in the James Joyce Library at Belfield, where she met with principal archivist Kate Manning. The Dorothy McArdle jail diaries or journals, they form part of the Eamon de Valera papers here in UCD, in the archives. We know that her papers were destroyed in a fire. The fact that these survived, they clearly weren't in the same location. The journals themselves are very interesting. They're not typical, I would think, of what diaries normally contain. They're very uh, literary. I think they're self-consciously literary. She writes very well, she writes in a very imaginative way. I mean, some of her accounts in the diaries are not anything I've seen before in diaries like that. They tell us a lot about Dorothy McArdle. They tell us about the conditions within the jail at the time. They tell us about her relationships with the other prisoners. What happened when is not the most important aspect of the diaries. It's They're much more emotional. In the context of the material created by women in prison, I think they're more or less unique. They're very interesting. Yeah, wonderful things to have survived. So initially when I saw them, I thought, what is this? Historian Leanne Lane is one of only a few scholars who have previously studied Dorothy's diaries in detail. 
they're not very clearly organised chronologically, so they move back and forth between different time periods. There's a lot of, you know, very quick writing. The so-called kind of traditional journal entries are interspersed with poems, musings, uh, kind of almost propagandist pieces of what it means to be a Republican. There's early versions of the sh- some of the short stories in Earthbound. There's writing sometimes along the margins. It's in it's in copybooks. I, I personally definitely think it's just a fragment of, of a, a larger journal because there's no reason why she would have finished it mid-March 1923 uh, when she continued to be imprisoned uh, and write about imprisonment uh, right up until early May 1923. It very much gives something that is very important to me as a historian. It very much gives her inner voice. So all we could say if we didn't have these jail journals is that Dorothy went to prison. But what we find from these journals is her almost kind of talking to herself and teasing out some of the issues that she has around what it means to be Republican, her fear at losing her job. So she had very much a very comfortable middle-class life mapped out. She had a very good job. She talked about losing her job. Just take them out. Just seeing this for the first time. I mean, they, they look so beautiful, these books. Yes. They're a hundred years old. Yes. One of the things that always strikes me with this kind of material, and it's not just diaries uh, or journals, it's also in letters and other kind of personal material, the stuff that's not official, is how strong people's voices are. You hear people's voices from the rhythm of their writing and the topics that they choose to write about and the, the strength of their feeling and their the way that they, their facility to express what they're thinking and feeling, uh, whether it's uh, about being separated from people or it's about prison conditions or it's uh, about the current state of politics or the cause that they're fighting for, you hear their voices. And it's an incredibly powerful aspect of looking after personal papers. You know, having this kind of very personal, extremely well-written and very well cared for material it's it's a privilege i mean it takes you directly to her her voice and her soul absolutely yeah yeah i can't wait to read these (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how i'm going to do it because looking at the writing on the first page it just looks like you know squiggles beautiful squiggles to me but um i'm going to give it a try anyhow it's a challenge but it's a it's a worthy challenge (laughs) Okay, Sharon, so we're at the microfilm reader. Uh, so you will be looking at the, the Dorothy McArdle material on microfilm. So I've loaded up the reel for you, but I'll show you how it works. Uh, fast forward, you, you just press this button here to go reverse, uh, fast, slow re- forward, you press this button. Fast reverse and slow reverse. Okay, I'll give it a go. <laughs> Sharon spends days on end at the projector, attempting to decipher and decode Dorothy's diaries. It proves very difficult. While some pages are legibly laid out, in other places the handwriting is almost impenetrable. There is a sense that some of the writing was done furtively, in poor light. 
Kate offers to send Sharon photocopies of the diaries and for several months Sharon works from home squinting at words, typing up reams and more and more immersing herself in Dorothy's world. For a little while only in those solitudes, thought and imagination live and work. Out of memories, the mind goes weaving dreams and philosophies again, out of the very stuff of its imprisonment. She transcribes verbatim the three surviving diaries, all 50,000 words of them, reliving Dorothy's descriptions of everyday jail life and politics, as well as her dreams, inner fears and doubts, hearing anew the voices not only of Dorothy herself, but her fellow prisoners, Lily O'Brennan, a veteran of 1916, Mary McSweeney, whose hunger strike mobilised public opinion in favour of the women, Nora Connolly, daughter of James Connolly, and Noreen Cogley, who singing from her cell gave comfort to the women in their darkest hours. On arrival at Mount Joy, we were delivered into the hands of the wardresses, searched and shown into a long bare cell. In the rehearsal room, Declan and Sharon discussed the challenges of adapting a fragmented diary into a piece of theatre. The huge difference here is that if you take, let's say, a book like The Big Fellow, Frank O'Connor's biography of Michael Collins, it's a story. Frank O'Connor has already done the work of actually laying it out as a story. So for the dramatist transposing that, you know, as a narrative drama, the fundamental work is already done by the original author. Whereas with the diaries, it's just not like that because well, they do follow a chronology of sorts. I mean, they begin in November and they run on to March. She didn't write it as a story. She didn't write it in no. the way that she wrote her novels. You're right, there's no set chronology, but she sets them out in episodes. So the front page of one of the notebooks, she lists the chapters almost. So you've got prison moods, prison vigils, prison dreams, prison letters. I suppose the next thing is, where are the climatic points in the piece? What's happening? What yes. actually happens in prison uh, that'll excite our audience? <laughs> the mundane, day-to-day -day life in prison in 1922. Not only was the role of women in public life diminished in historical accounts, in Dorothy's own lifetime, there were attempts to silence her. Her papers and literary manuscripts were publicly burned on the street by Free State soldiers at the time of her arrest in 1922. She felt deeply frustrated by the 1935 Conditions of Employment Act and the 1937 Constitution, overseen by her erstwhile mentor, Eamon de Valera, both of which reduced the status of women. Closer to home, even during her time in prison, her own father and mother sought to rein in their wayward daughter. Her father wanted her to sign the form. This was a form that was given to all prisoners stating that they would be released if they promised not to destabilise the state that was in the process of being formed. Dorothy refused to sign the form and she resented her father for uh, trying to suggest that she would. Her father did agitate, as I said, to have her released. He wrote to Cosgrave using his influence, um, you know, as a very powerful businessman. And I think really interesting, you know, suggesting that he would manage her. Now, Dorothy at this point is a woman in her 30s, early 30s. She was certainly no girl, but he calls her a girl. He talks about how he would manage her if she was released. 
To find out more, Sharon and Declan paid a visit to Elizabeth McAvoy, archivist at the National Archives, where a file exists of correspondence between Dorothy's parents and the Free State authorities. To summarise the contents of the file, it's correspondence uh, and letters that are written in an effort to have Dorothy released. So her family are absolutely horrified at the turn that Dorothy's life has taken. There's an element of trying to preserve the, the family's name. It's important to bear in mind that Dorothy is 33 when she is incarcerated. She's 34 when she's released. So she's not a, she's not a child. She's not a young woman either. I think by the, the, the lights of the day, she probably would have been regarded as a middle-aged spinster and a troublesome one at that. The impression that I got reading the letters, it's quite patronising and condescending. Her parents are very eager to minimise the harm or the danger that the authorities think that Dorothy poses. As a result, or in the process, they are undermining her agency. They are robbing her of her freedom of action, of her autonomy, of her independence to make her own decisions. But because she's in prison, um, she doesn't really have a choice. And if she wants to get out, she is dependent on this letter-writing campaign that her parents get up. But an example of the infantilising tone that some of the letters take, um, her father says that Dorothy edited a little paper called Freedom. Even even the use of the word little, little paper, little woman, little paper. He says in the same letter that he needs to make allowances for feminine exaggeration. Now, I don't think you need to be a firebrand feminist for any woman to really bristle at language like that. Even if it's in the 1920s, I think most women would really rebel against terminology like that. Um, her mother speaks about how she wrote harmless articles in a paper. She says, my daughter has been foolish. She has been influenced and led astray by the woman released last week. Now, that woman is Maud Gon McBride. And I think her parents very much see Maud Gon and Constance Markiewicz as a very bad influence on Dorothy. Now again, she's 33, she's 34. She's not led astray that easily. But I think when her mother writes, I did, I did smile when I was reading her mother writing, um, basically, you don't know my daughter. She will not sign that letter. I, I know my girl. So despite their best attempts to paint Dorothy as this very gentle, shrinking violet, her mother knows that she, there is no way in Hades Dorothy is going to sign that form of undertaking. In February 1923, three months into her incarceration, Dorothy was transferred, along with 45 other women, from Mountjoy Jail to Kilmainham. Nowadays a notable museum, Kilmainham had already achieved a certain sacred status by the time of the Civil War, as the place where the 1916 leaders had been held and executed. But conditions were grim, as curator Brian Crowley explains. So, this is a, like, a very typical prison cell. Um, yeah, I think she found it very oppressive, and that is what they're kind of designed to do. You know, it's a semi-abandoned building, so I think it has all that kind of mustiness. She's coming from Mountjoy. You know, it was a working building, and it was a, a better functioning building, and she's very scathing about the conditions here when she arrives. It is altogether unlike our little prison hospital at Mount Joy. A long, high building shaped like an arrow horseshoe. 
Iron galleries, iron doors, iron gangway, iron staircase, iron grating from roof to floor, a great cage. Cells on the first gallery have been allocated to Betty and me. I felt as though I had been thrust living into a tomb. The tiny barred window out of reach, the chill, the underground smell like a mortuary chapel or a white sepulchre. When she came in initially, she seems to be in a kind of a ground floor cell, uh, but she's very, very anxious to get kind of an airier, brighter cell. Yeah, she's very sensitive to the light. Yeah, so she's, she writes about how in the diary that they're very excited the day that the matron announces that the upper floor is going to be open. Can we get out of this yes. cold cell, please? Yeah, we get out of the cold cell. It's freezing. <laughs> we'll go up to the, the elevated heights upstairs. <laughs> up here doesn't it yeah yeah no you're you're definitely up very high and um the light just coming through that glass you can also see as well why dorothy was so excited oh. about getting up here they reference the, the names of the two cells so one is called the green flash and the other is called hut 24 so those are those cells just up at the very top there near and she references this Shoot. as well it's near the curve of the of the horseshoe so we know exactly what two cells herself and Betty were in. And interestingly as well, because you know, she talks about the light and she's very pleased because she is on the south facing part of the east wing. So that's the side of the, the wing that gets the most light and is, is the brightest. So she's very excited about that and very, I think it kind of does her spirit good. But interestingly, the one that's called the green flash, apparently there's a, a phenomenon of the sun. It happens just at, Sunset and at sunrise, very rarely you get this, the very last piece that goes green, there's a big green flash. And in the 1880s, there's a book by Jules Verne called The Green Flash. It was imbued with mystical properties that the person, if you saw that, that you had kind of uh, truth-seeing powers as a result of seeing it. I think The Green Flash would definitely appeal to Dorothy's literary and, I suppose, affinity with the supernatural as well. I suppose when we go in, we can see some of the features that she describes. She, it's built in this horseshoe shape. She talks about a view from the, the window. Do you mind if I climb up? Yeah, no. <laughs> she can see the Wicklow Mountains from here. Oh, look. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. There's, like, there's actually really, a, it's, it's a oh. beautiful view over, over... You can see the whole range. Yeah. And you can hear the birds. Well, when the doors of our new suite were unlocked and Betty and I found ourselves in possession each of a wide, pure, brilliant beam of sun, it was revival of dead hope, joy and life beyond any words. I climbed and looked out at one of the most beautiful views that any window of mine has ever shown. The happy suburban street, prams, trams and gay advertisement hoardings and sunlit green fields and behind the heart-lifting range of the Wicklow Hills. It is a vision of freedom itself in its holiest, its most everyday moods. Since I came in possession of that window, I have not felt like a prisoner at all. Yeah, she talks about the whitewash walls and how she'd love to have seen a 
bunch of daffodils and on the shelf yeah. <laughs> to brighten up her herself, but she really made it her home yeah. her descriptions and her yeah. gallery. What's interesting among both the men and the women is when they do share a cell, they kind of develop this semi kind of quasi-domestic partnership. So, you know, one person will do one set of chores and the other person will do the other. They will also, over time, the women prisoners started to domesticate the space. So some of them start to make curtains out of prison blankets. And what I think is really interesting about, you know, this kind of, I suppose, this homemaking that they're doing is, in some ways, it's very conventional. You know, they, it's, it's what is expected of women, that they will make a domestic space but within a prison and within the prison architecture, which aims to remove all personality, it's actually a deeply, I think, subversive act. To make yourself pretty and homely is the complete opposite to what the people who built this jail in the 19th century intended it to be. On the top shelf, I have placed five books and a tall, empty glass. How beautiful tulips or daffodils would look in it against the bare white wall. There is a pot of face cream and a powder box Relics of an almost forgotten civilization. Brian makes reference to Dorothy's literary sensibilities and her affinity with the supernatural. And back in the rehearsal room, Sharon and Declan search her prison journals for evidence of Dorothy's connection to other worlds and dimensions. Mm -hmm. Could we just have a little look at, at that scene? Uh, so this is where... Um, they've been in the cell at the bedside of Miss McSweeney, who is weakening, but still she's not near the end of her hunger strike yet. And so my sense here is that they've stepped outside mm -hmm. the cell and they're on their knees, as they were all the time, just constantly praying outside the cell. Tessie and I were both kneeling outside her door when a strange mystery happened. Dorothy, did you? Someone passed. I heard a footfall. Didn't it go beyond to the stairs? Shh. She's wide awake in there. Who was it, Dorothy? There was someone like a... A brotherly presence. Jesus. Terence McSweeney. Well, that's all right, like, Terence McSweeney here. Professor Luke Gibbons of the National University of Ireland, Maynooth, discusses the supernatural in Dorothy's short story collection, Earthbound. What's very intriguing about the stories in Earthbound, given that they were written under duress in prison, is that they raise all kinds of questions about testimony and they're full of enigmas and full of uh, conundrums and unresolved issues so that you read the story and it has come to an end because the person has stopped telling it. But sometimes you're no wiser than when you began. So what is really happening here? Did I miss something? and you have to go back and read the story. But the enigma is that unless there's an intervention from the other world, we do not know the truth. But then there's questions over whether this 
otherworldly intervention is actually a paranormal event or whether it's a genuinely sort of unconscious psychoanalytical event that can be explained in material terms, like a dream, or whether it's a genuine intervention of the other world. She has a section, a chapter in her diary called Prison Dreams. She writes them one after another, really. Um, so she goes from one dream into the next. In this case, she's on a hill path with her mother and Mona. She calls it a land of heart's desire. A tunnelled passage leads us upward into utter darkness, so steep that I cry out, No, this is impossible. We shall fall backwards with every step. And it's very seldom that these dreams that come to her make her feel safe or free. She's usually escaping something or she's usually been hunted or free only on parole. I am with Donald in London again. I catch his arm. Donald, listen, do listen. Donald, this is a dream. In a minute I shall wake up in jail. Oh, Donald, the walls, the walls. The prison walls are falling in on top of her and she actually wakes up in that dream or in that nightmare on, on her mattress with her hands pressed against the white wall of the cell and realises that Donald is leagues away across the sea. Dorothy's jail journals are interspersed with handwritten poems and lyrics for songs and also passages from some of her earthbound stories. In Kilmainham, Brian brings Sharon to an area of the prison where an ancient carved inscription became the inspiration for one of Dorothy's most haunting stories, The Prisoner. The Prisoner is definitely seems to be set in Kilmainham jail. The Prisoner is centres around a, a man who was in Kilmainham during the War of Independence and he was put in solitary confinement and started to hallucinate. Uh, due to a hunger strike and he sees this ghost of a, a young man who claims to be a servant of Lord Edward Fitzgerald but there's a specific reference then to the inscription in the infirmary so this is an inscription from 1798 carved into the windowsill by a man who was part of the United Irishman. Patrick McCann of the County Down Late of the City of Dublin, August 14, 1798. Imprisoned. It fades out here yeah. as imprisoned and it's just lost. Yeah. And it's almost because he doesn't finish it, it kind of makes it more a moment in, in time, you know, that it's something that was started and then never finished. Obviously, it's the, the oldest bit of graffiti in the, in the building it does feel like a message from the past. And I think that would have appealed to Dorothy as well, the fact that she you know, has this kind of little glimpse, something very literary about it. Uh, and it's interesting then that obviously she kind of folds it into, into that short story of, of her own, that this kind of moment of the past. And in some ways, I suppose, The Prisoner, that short story is about a moment from the past coming into what was then the present and now, ironically, is part of our past, you know. Um, do you mind if I read a couple of lines from yeah. this story? Because we're talking about time and she does talk about losing a sense of time in mm. prison. I used to think that time went past outside like a dream, moving on. But in prison, you're in a kind of whirlpool, time going round and round with you, so that you'd never come to anything, even death. Only back again to yesterday, 
and round to today and back to yesterday again. Luke Gibbons sees the ghost stories of Dorothy McArdle as pioneering and modernist while emerging from a genre referred to as Republican Gothic. The conventional Gothic in Freudian terms would be the return of the repressed. But the Republican Gothic would be the return of the oppressed. That the oppressed have not gone away. And rather than being a source of terror, they're a source of consolation and a source of recovery and indeed a source of deliverance. And it's remarkable in McArdle's fiction and others, but McArdle primarily, that the threat is coming from the future rather than the past. So McArdle's fiction is full of forebodings. It is fascinated with what's called foreknowledge or prevision. McArdle was steeped in John William Dunn's theories of prevision, and it comes up in the dialogue in The Unforeseen when someone doubts the capacity of so-called prevision to foretell the future. Time is relative to where you're standing. So what you see in McArdle is a very advanced modernist take on notions of time and history and space. And she was kind of in tune with this long before she read Dunn. Dunn was published in 1927. And the stories in Earthbound obviously predate that. But the stories in Earthbound are already preoccupied with dreams that foretell the future. I dreamt I was going through a rejoicing crowd in Dundalk to meet Mary McSweeney in De Valera. The chief had arrived alone. I saw him in a carriage driving away from the marketplace uphill. But when the carriage was halfway up, he jumped down and began to walk back, saying he would like to meet Mary McSweeney. She appeared, stepping out of a railway carriage. I put her into a carriage and drove with her into town. It was not until we had driven some way that I remembered the chief, walking down to meet her. I was stricken with remorse and fear. He was hunted, and I had forgotten him, left him wandering in the open street. The inconsiderate unkindness of it. The dream turned into something quite different then. A ghastly vision on the roadside, a man and a boy caught in a whirligig, which, gaining mad impetus before my eyes, went out of control and whirled them horribly to death. I mean, that dream is particularly uncanny because mm. she is anticipating the split in the Republican movement. She, you know, because... Mary McSweeney and De Valera eventually did go their separate ways. That there's, no, there's no way of knowing it at this point. Yes, yeah. You know, again, that sense that she is dreaming the future and that she wonders what it means and that she's troubled by it. You know, she sees trouble ahead in the movement. Dorothy's days of relative calm and creativity in her new upstairs cell are short-lived. On April the 30th, a catastrophic event occurred. It was announced that 81 women were to be removed that evening to a temporary jail at the North Dublin Union. The women determined to resist this forcible transfer.
Their concern about this is the fact that they, they fear there'll be nobody left to look after Mary McSweeney and Mrs O'Callaghan, who are both kind of very weak and on hunger strikes. So Mrs O'Callaghan is released, but Mary McSweeney is still going to be here. So they have a meeting and they decide what they're going to do. Part of their strategy is actually to come up here to the top gallery and kind of uh, hunker down in there and, and hold on. Dorothy's diary account of this dreadful day is lost. However, an article she wrote which was smuggled out of the North Dublin Union does survive. She describes how the prisoners linked arms and clung to the railings to resist, but the military policemen sent in to remove the women showed no mercy, applying brutal violence to force them down from the upper gallery. The riot happened here? Yeah. So they would have clung to these railings? Clung to these railings. I think they got as f up here as far out of reach as they could. And then there's all these descriptions of this of being pulled down the stairs then. Uh, the, the noise must have been yeah. dreadful with the, the clanging of the metal and... Yeah, you know, that noise would have been exaggerated and echoed quite a lot. There was one man with a blackened face when my own turn came after I had been dragged from the railings. A great hand closed on my face, blinding and stifling me, and thrust me back down to the ground among trampling feet. I heard someone who saw it scream out and wondered how Miss McSweeney would bear the noise. After that, I remember being carried by two or three men and flung down in the surgery to be searched. I would, I were on yonder hill, just there I'd sit and cry my fill. And every tear would turn a mill This good day who have worn in slon. According to her own account, Dorothy filled six notebooks with her jail journals, but only three have survived. The rest incinerated by her brother after her death in 1958. The burning of her papers runs like a recurring nightmare through the full span of Dorothy's life and death malicious enemies, distressed relatives and outrageous fortune conspired time and again to silence her voice and erase her memory. One of the earliest entries in the surviving jail diaries captures Dorothy at a moment of exceptional trauma. It's shortly after her arrest in November 1922. She has just received a letter from Maud Gone McBride telling her that Free State soldiers have desecrated her manuscripts. Dear Dorothy, there has been an appalling raid on number 73. The house has been shot up. They painted skulls and crossbones on your sitting room walls with green paint. They made a bonfire in the road of all your papers and manuscripts, your plays, even your college lectures. Some of your pupils were passing by. They were picking up fragments of your lectures on Hamlet in the street for souvenirs. Everything burnt. The people of my vanished plays, born out of my imagination, foredoomed never to be given life. Poor Cassandra is crying out to me from among the flames. Oh, Cassandra, you were so wild and beautiful. 
and Astra. I cannot believe you dead. And Arvila. I am sure that she is gone. My rhythm book. Eight years of theory and quotations. All my work. I had published nothing. My poetry is all over now. My poetry is all over now. The anguished cry of a wounded artist grieving the loss of her life's work. A true moment of despair. But Dorothy may have underestimated her own resilience. Far from over, her literary strength returned and her work took on an extraordinary new shape and vision. Earthbound signalled a new departure in Dorothy's literary writing. The dawn of her emergence as a major gothic horror author whose work would eventually take her to the heights of Hollywood acclaim. And while it is true that many of her personal papers and literary manuscripts are lost forever, she might have taken comfort from the efforts of modern historians, archivists, scholars, feminist publishing houses and diverse artists to retrieve her legacy and surviving work. On September the 22nd, 2022, a group of those scholars and activists assembled at Kilmainham Jail, in the inner hall where Dorothy would have been led on arrival at that grim prison 100 years earlier. They were there to attend a unique event. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this evening's special performance of Prison Notebooks here at Kilmainham Jail, where 100 years ago, Dorothy McCardle would have been led on the day of her transfer from Mountjoy Prison. On behalf of Sharon and myself, who have worked on this project for almost five years now, I just want to say that this is a very special and emotional night for us, and we hope you enjoy the performance. A few practical matters, I would ask you please to switch off your mobile phones, and please note the emergency exits. Memories behave in a curious way. They advance and retreat, rearranging themselves in new perspectives. Questioned about my own recollections, The audience watched intently as the testimony and dreams of Dorothy McCardle were brought to vivid life through Sharon's speaking and movement. The recorded soundtrack resonated with the imagined rattles and shouts of Kilmainham a century earlier. The metal banging, slamming doors, the pained weeping and laughter of the women among whom Dorothy lived. And the old stone building re-echoed to one sound in particular, the beacon song given a haunting rendition by folk singer Sophie Coyle. It was the first time the song was sung in a hundred years, written to comfort and cheer her fellow prisoners and found among her prison notebooks. It was composed by none other than the artist, revolutionary and visionary Dorothy McCartney. A quenchless brand 